If you listened to my show on Sunday, you would have heard that this podcast is five years old in January and it's time for a change. So we have a few shows left in the current format that will come out between now and the end of December. But it's funny, when I consider it changing or letting go of the familiar, there's this element of fear that turns up and the urge to step away from that edge. And of course, we just need to go forward and let go. And that reminds me of a conversation I had with John Perkis, The Power of Letting Go. It was one of those inspiring and long conversations. In fact, so long that I split the show into two parts. You're about to hear part one as a re-upload. It's about overcoming depression, using mindfulness and how to get the life you want. So I'll let my former self tell you more about it. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything. Because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? But then I had this terrifying realization, which was, you know, I'd won prizes for being super analytical. And in the meantime, my intuition had kind of died. You know, and and what I realized was, to be a good headhunter, you need intuition. And you just cannot, you need it. Uh, to be an investment manager, you need intuition. To be any good at sales, you need intuition. And my intuition had shut down. My guest on the program today is John Perkis, a headhunter and a published author who discovered and taught himself mindfulness from a novel. John is the co-founder of Perkis & Company, where he recruits chief executives, finance directors and other board members. But he's also a published author with at least three books to his name. To start at the beginning, John went to a grammar school in Leicester and then on to Cambridge University to study economics. He was the first in his family to get a university education. From there he went into banking, but there was the pull of education and he enrolled into the business school INSEAD to take an MBA. As someone who was at the top of his game, he won the Henry Ford II Prize. So his life was mapped out, a future in banking and finance was ready and waiting for him. But instead, he got clinical depression that nearly killed him. After countless doctors and psychiatrists, drugs were prescribed that had him sleeping for 10 hours a day. John's story is not unlike many, with many ups and downs, starting with depression. There have been three major events in his life that have led him to the very depths of despair. He says we have three choices when life hits the buffers. Kill yourself, bear it, or step up. John has learnt to step up. And on his travels, John has lived and worked in France, Belgium and the USA and speaks French, German and Spanish. Our conversation was wide-ranging. We explored how his depression was in fact a blessing. Why smart people get ill. We explored his interest in entrepreneurship and angel investing and what it cost to recruit Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google, back in 2001. We explored the rediscovery of his intuition, how following a guru changed much that he thought was true or real. In that point, it becomes a conversation about oneness and so much more. 
Our wide-ranging conversation takes lots of twists and turns, leading to the publication of Letting Go. Like all of John's books, it is an exploration of what worked for him. I hope you enjoy the conversation with John Perkis. Welcome to Life, Passion and Business. I am delighted today to be with John Perkis and he is a headhunter and an author because he writes books. So this is going to be an interesting conversation because you know, I never spoke to a headhunter before other than when I was being headhunted. Or was I? Not quite sure. Anyway, John, thank you for being on the program. It's a, it's a delight to have you today. Well, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. <laughs> So this is life, passion and business, and it's all about an exploration of the human spirit and how we bring the qualities of ourselves into our daily life. So what's your story, John? Because obviously you're an author and a headhunter, but I know there's a lot more to that. Well, I will try and make it concise, but essentially I have a very conventional background. So I went to grammar school in Leicester. I went to Cambridge and studied economics. I worked in banking and management consulting. I went to business school at INSEAD. I won first prize at business school, and then I got clinical depression that nearly killed me. So that's kind of the intro to probably what we're going to talk about today. Probably, yeah. So you, you obviously had this nicely mapped out life, and then someone threw a spanner in it or well, something. Other, other people thought it was mapped out, and I was becoming more and more uneasy, and then finally it snapped when I was 26. 26 okay all right so, so my friends say i i did my midlife crisis early which is a sort of kind <laughs> way of <laughs> I, i'm guessing there's a lot of pressure and stuff of like that so what's the story of that I mean i guess that um, must have been a pressure pressure fed or no, no it wasn't it wasn't pressure actually um so i'm the eldest of three boys and my parents uh didn't go to university um and so it was kind of a surprise to them. Um, apparently when I was like 10, my, the headmaster said, John will go to university. My dad nearly fell off his chair. Oh, so, wow. that, that, so there wasn't any pressure. And I loved what I was doing. I loved business school and I, I loved the whole thing. But I was, what happened essentially, you know, we can all reframe our past in many ways, right? But, but the way I see it now is um, I was becoming more and more, to use the sort of lazy jargon, I was becoming more and more left brain. So when I was a small child, like most small children, I was intuitive and creative and I mm. ran around. But I went down this track of being good at languages and economics and da-di-da. And, and then, you know, when you get into the world of work and you're doing more and more analytical, logical work, um, I realized early on, okay, I can do banking and management consulting, but I don't want to do that because the lifestyle is terrible, right? Um, you know, if you work in banking in the city it, it, or, or the top level of management, it is not sustainable long-term, right? Uh, some of the people I know are already dead, literally, right? Why, why is that so tough? I mean... Well, because they work 12 to 16 hours a day. They travel hugely. They eat badly. They have massive stress. And, and you're constantly using your brain you, it's all brain work. So I can't all, get my head around what, what you do in banking for 16 hours a day. Well, what you do, and this is, you know, this is central to what we're talking about today, is, is, is what, what a lot of people, you know, I live in London and you see it all around you, is um, it's basically, you know, for example, they're trying to win a banking deal. So they will spend hours and hours analysing the company, analysing the situation, preparing marketing, material, marketing materials, proofreading, blah, blah. Then you win the deal. Then there's this massive panic. <laughs> to close the deal right you're trying to convince all these people of things 
management consulting. You know, you go in there, you you analyze you analyze the situation, you you do Excel and PowerPoint and blah blah. And you can you can fill in hours and hours and hours in a day doing that stuff. You know, and I have yeah. friends who worked in the law, same thing. You know, you can spend twelve hours plus a day working on legal documents. Easy. Right. Yeah, I guess you can looking at the file. You just do, it, yeah. do that for a few decades with with a mortgage, three children in private school, and you know, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> well i mean I, I remember someone saying to me that the uh the city has this thing about creating a like a, a a handcuff situation where you get to like suddenly you find yourself with the trophy wife and the kids and everything else and and a lifestyle that you have to sustain <laughs> yeah well it, i mean it's not true for everyone but there's a lot of that there's also facetime which i rebelled against immediately which was being judged on how long you're in the office. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that. what I found weird was, you know, especially having been through Cambridge, because, you know, half these guys were Oxbridge. It's like, okay, so you're all intelligent and well-educated. Why are you working in such a stupid way? I just couldn't understand that. Actually, so, if you ever... Sorry. Go on, yeah, go on. Now, on have you ahead. ever seen the film with um, Tom Cruise called The Firm? Yes. What said made me think of that. Like, he, he, he gets... They say to him, look, by the time you've got all your kids in private school and your house and your trophy wife, you know, then we tell you that we're working for the mafia. Then <laughs> <laughs> <And> you're stuck. <laughs> but yeah, there's a bit of that. Like, you, you, how, how do you escape once you're in that system? I don't know. <laughs> so you were, I mean, was there any passion in this for you? Or clearly not, I guess. That's probably well, why I, you went, that's why you went bang. <laughs> well, no, essentially what happened was... Um, I, when I came out of business school, I become more and more and more analytical, you know, yeah. so to get through business school and to win prizes, you need to be very, very analytical. Yeah. Um, and I found I could do all that. And also because I spoke French, you know, that aspect was easy for me and, and German and that was all easy. Um, but what I realized with hindsight, cause I, you know, I ended up doing it. I did 18 months of Freudian psychoanalysis and what, what I realized what, you know, they sent me the, you know, the health insurance people sent me off to see literally a man with a white beard in North London. Oh, how nice. Did he have yeah. little glasses, little ring glasses? I uh, probably did, you know, but he was the classic. He's, he's no longer with us, Dr. Hildebrand. And he was classic lie on the couch. We were within probably two miles of the Freud museum. Oh, lovely. You know, so all, all, the, all that, but, um, what I realized had happened was, so, so when I was at business school, I thought, okay, I've done strategy consulting and banking. I, I like working at board level. I like all of that. I don't like the way this work happens. It's not, it's un unhealthy. I don't want to do it. And then, and then my roommate from Cambridge had, um, got into headhunting. So he started right at the bottom, you know, recruiting newly qualified accountants. It was all very salesy. But within a few years, he was, he was working in what I thought was a much more interesting environment. He was recruiting senior people. It wasn't pressurized. And, and I thought, that's great. And um, I also got interested in investment and thought, well, that's possible. And my, my father and my brother were both in sales, so I wasn't afraid of sales. Hmm. But then I had this terrifying realization, which was, you know, I'd won prizes for being super analytical. And in the meantime, my intuition had kind of died. You know, and, and what I realized was, to be a good headhunter, you need intuition. And you just yeah. cannot, find, you need it. Uh, to be an investment manager, you need intuition. To be any good at sales, you need intuition. And my intuition had shut down. So I felt completely trapped because I thought I've been, I'm highly trained to do something I don't want to do. And the things I'm really interested in doing, um, I can't do. And then what happened within a few weeks is I started waking up really early and feeling suicidal and feeling trapped and stuck. Mm. And I went 
I went to several, I drove my GP mad. I went to see several doctors in London and in Wiltshire, and they all went through their flow charts and they all came out the bottom and said, you've got clinical depression. Oh. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And my mother was a retired physio, was a physiotherapist. She wasn't really familiar with it. Um, hmm. And what was scary was, so the school I went to in Leicester, the, the only two famous people who went there were the Attenborough brothers. It's, it was a state grammar school, right? right? And what I realized was, oh, all those people who committed suicide at school, because there were several who committed suicide either at school or shortly after. Wow. Yeah, a handful of them, right? Tough school and, then. Well, well, it was a, it was a grammar school. Uh, it was astonishingly, you know, the whole thing was free. My education was free. Okay. Uh, but at the, I think we had 120 boys a year in the grammar school and then more in the sixth form. Yeah. But at the peak, we sent like 18 people to Oxbridge, which for a state school was a lot. Yes. So they pushed then, you, they pushed everyone really hard by the time. Well, I think we pushed ourselves. I mean, most of my mates were, were, I mean, I'm still happy. A lot of my friends were like ethnic minorities, like, you know, Jewish, Polish, Asian. <laughs> so you've got these kind of people striving away to be successful. And, um, and all we really knew was, I mean, no one ever said it explicitly, but um, the message that certainly I picked up was, if you're clever and hardworking, you will have a good life. Yeah. This was like the unspoken <clears throat> contract. So, okay, I'm clever. I work really hard. Uh, and then I think, and then I kind of realized, actually, my, my life's not good at all. You know, what's gone wrong? And then I realized, oh, those people who committed suicide or who kind of went off the rails and were very unhappy, oh, maybe this is what happened to them. And I wasn't in touch with them anymore, obviously. So, but I kind of realized, oh, something's going on here, like super intelligent people falling ill. Yeah. There's some, something's not right here. And how do I solve it? And the slight frustration was, you know, the psychiatrist couldn't solve it. The doctors couldn't solve it. And that's kind of when my journey began because I realized all these professionals, they don't have the answer. Well, they'll give you an answer in a bottle, won't they? Take these so what they gave me, Yeah, you're exactly right. So what happened was, they gave me these drugs called tricyclics, which made me sleep 10 hours a day and actually shut down some of my bodily functions. And then, um, and then I got fired. So my job, I was supposed to be working like 12 hours a day. And um, in my highly paid, you know, corporate strategy job. And um, I was sleeping 10 hours a day. So that didn't quite work, right? No, no. And eventually, after, a few, after about 10 months, they fired me. Uh, and then I got fired again. And then, and then I, then I left London because I realized I you just, I just cannot solve this. So I went to live with my parents and then began, you know, searching for answers, which, so that's how it began. That must've been tough going home in your late twenties. Yeah. I think it was 27, but my mum having been a physiotherapist, I remember going long walks with her and she didn't know what the answer was because no one had had it in our family. I don't no. think, well, no. Um, and then I gradually started finding my way. I mean, now I look back and think the way I see it now is clinical depression at 26 was a blessing because it was the beginning of the end of the ego. Yeah. I mean, from the point of view of the enlightenment process, at some point your ego has to get cracked open, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say that's a very common theme in all of my guests. Okay. There's always a crisis point somewhere of which they wouldn't return to. I mean, you know, um, Miha Maxilowski, uh, the guy from uh, Serbia, I mean, he, he was on the wrong side of the balcony working out to kill himself. Yeah. You know, because uh, uh, he had men with no necks looking for money. Uh, uh, you oh, know, uh, and, and he, at that moment, made a decision to do something about it. Yes. 
Well, I, I and was, reversed I, I, the, and reversed it, and it's like as you say, you, you, something happens, isn't it? You you make a decision. Yes, and and um, you know, I live about um, four hundred meters from the tower that I would have jumped off, but it was you know the door was locked. So in the Imperial, I live near, I live near, I live near Imperial College, right? And Imperial College has this tower that people used to jump off, so now they keep it locked, right? I'm sure. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, so. But, but on reflection, um, you know, this kind of hitting rock bottom and realizing this isn't working. I think as far as I can tell, it's happened three times, but now I kind of know the pattern. So the way I see it now is when nothing works, you, one option is to kill yourself. Okay. But the other option is to say, there's something I, there's something fundamental I haven't understood. And what seems to happen is, is you start going up a level, you know, in, in terms of frequency or, wavelength so basically you're going up the answer is to go up a level and going up a level in my experience always involves letting go of something right <clears throat> and hence the book power of letting go right so absolutely so so we'll get to that book uh, so what happened you're now walking with your mum you're back in home yeah. you know yeah, yeah. I, i'm assuming you weren't short of money because obviously you had quite a good job but well, I, had, had... I had some money i had this flat in london which got rented out um yeah so what happened was uh, and this was a, the first stage of letting go if you like was i thought well okay so i have this kind of gold-edged cv that everyone loves which gets me into jobs which are completely unsuitable yes so so i thought okay i'll just leave the cv in the drawer right just forget that and then um because my, you know, my dad was, had, had been a sales manager, you know, he'd been pretty successful. He'd brought up three children. Yeah. Um, you know, he had, a, I mean, actually he had multiple sclerosis, but that's a different issue, but he had a pretty good life having left school at 16. Right. Mm. And here was me, Mr. Super educated, Oxbridge MBA, blah, 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 feeling suicidal. And, and also my brother by this stage was a sales manager. He's now set, he then became a sales director and much less academic than me, but, you know, happily married and live, leading a normal life and think, hold it. And also my, you know, my roommate who was less academic than me and was you know, married and two children and doing well in headhunting. I was thinking, hold it, hold it, hold it. You know, clearly there's something I haven't understood here. So I put my CV in the drawer and I basically started exploring with an open mind. And yeah. I was quite interested in, I thought, well, sales is interesting because you know, as you may know, at business school, they don't mention sales, right? <laughs> Like sales is like you know what drives business but business schools don't teach sales unless they've changed right so i thought okay well maybe i look at sales and anyway and my dad said well i met this guy in the town this is a town of like eighteen thousand people in Wiltshire. i met this guy in the town and he was telling me something about software and i said okay that's interesting so i went to see this guy and he said well first thing he told me was um he he, he just earned twice what i was earning in my highly paid job oh right so okay so I thought, okay, so you don't need to be in London to earn plenty of money. No. I mean, this guy was 20 years older than me, but he was making a lot of money by, by that, you know, in those terms of those days. And the other thing he said is, well, I've got this software here and I've kind of developed it, but I haven't really done much with it. And what he was, this may sound like a dirty word to a lot of your listeners. He was an independent financial advisor. And what he'd done is he developed some software. And so he had two bits of software. He had some software, which was a database of all the private schools in the UK. Right. So, I, you know, I went to state school, but um, it's still true. 7% of the UK population goes to private school. Yeah. So we had this database 
And then he also had another piece of software, which was financial planning software. So this was, this was when, la this was just before laptops started. Right. They were just starting, right? And so, but you know, they're really clunky. And so he had this financial planning software. And so what you could do is you say, you know, I want to send my kid to some private school. If I, uh, so on the, with the one piece of software, I work out which school I want for, you know, my dyslexic child who loves horse riding, blah, blah, mm -hmm. within 20 miles to where I live. Mm -hmm. And then, then I know what the fees are. And then I put them into this other piece of software and I project what it's going to cost. And then I figure out, you know, from the independent financial advisor's point of view, what they like is then they can help their client to do the investments and take out the insurance. Yeah. Because for most people, if you send your kids to private school, it's, it's the second biggest purchase after your house. Right. Right. So anyway, so they had all this. So I was interested in this. So I played around with it. And so essentially we set up a business together. So I was his business partner and we were developing this. Uh, and at the same time to pay the bills, I became an independent financial advisor. And, and was routinely abused by people for two years. <laughs> so what I realized was, uh, what I realized was that, um, I mean, there were certain bits of it. I ended up doing a lot in pensions and investments. Um, but what Which I realized- Brought was, in your, your history, didn't it? Of, yeah, like, so, I mean, the investment bit was easy for me. The pensions bit's very, comp I don't know if you know, but pensions are very complicated and keeps changing. Right. But I got my mind around that and that was fine. But I realized a lot of that industry is riddled with conflicts of interest. Uh, I mean, it's still true to a, to a much lesser extent, but there's a major conflict. There were major conflicts of interest, hence all the mis-selling scandals, right? Um, but I did my best. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so we, we, we developed something, and that's kind of how I got into entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, I had the experience of working with someone 20 years older than me, I, I learned, you know, all the things that don't work. And, and actually, I actually made no money on that business, which was kind of disappointing because I thought you were supposed to lose tons of money on your first business. <laughs> I kind of came out quits. <laughs> so where was the passion in this? Because this is the thing. I mean, something was yeah. driving you to do this. What, what yeah, was Yeah, I think the passion was, which I still have, is I love, um, I love things. I love new things. And I love new things which are going to basically change the world. Yeah. So I've, I've since made a dozen angel investments, you know, so investments in yeah. early stage technology businesses. And of course, you know, most of them die. Um, a couple of them are doing well, which apparently is great <laughs> out of 12. Um, but I, I, I get excited. One of the things that excites me is meeting someone who's got a great product, which is going to change the world. Yeah. So one of my colleagues, uh, so, you know, I, later on, I became a headhunter. One of my colleagues in my old firm recruited Eric Schmidt to be chairman of Google. Right? Okay. <laughs> and if you, if you want later, we can talk about how much money they made. It was an out, it was outrageous, but you know, that is like, for me, that's like the dream piece of transformation in business, right? You know, here are two guys, they've developed this software. You recruit the chairman and they recruit one of the world's most, so they create one of the most valuable companies, you know, Good job. And we use their products many times each day. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting, interesting to think what, what, the, uh, what the bill must have been on that, on that, on that placement. <laughs> well, I, wait, do you want me to tell you? Because it's public information. Go on, what is it? So basically, business people listening might be interested in this. So the, the standard model for executive search is you charge one third of the candidate's first year remuneration. Right. Which is, you know, because normally there's tons of work and research. Okay. And this is public information because it was published in the annual report. So what happened was um, 
around this was 2000 it was just after i left around 2002 we had a warrant portfolio so what happened was um the the search firm would charge one third of first year cash plus one third of the warrants that of the equity the options that the candidate had accumulated in the first year right all right so so uh, because and it makes sense because you know if if the person's income has been drastically reduced in return for shares yeah or warrants or options it makes sense because otherwise the, the search firm does the same work for a lot less money so they got these warrants right and they had this rule that they would exercise the warrants when the company floated on the stock market yeah so when the company float this is a self-imposed rule right right when the company floated my old firm made 128 million dollars on that one assignment right <laughs> According to my sums, I need to go back and check, but I did like back of a fag packet calculate the other day, calculation. According to my very, I just took the change in the share price between the IPO when it floated yeah. and now for Google. According yeah. to my sums, that warrant would now be worth over $3 billion. Recruiting one person. Yes. <laughs> was, that your, was, that, was that your company? Are you involved in yeah, it? Yeah, it was. It's my former company. And I know the guy who did it. There were two okay. guys who did it. I know okay. one of them. Unfortunately, you weren't part of the company anymore. Well, no. And also, I wouldn't have got the money. So, so the guy who did it, um, I mean, this is all public. The, the, what happened was he became chief executive. Yeah. And, and, and they paid him a bonus. It, it, I have to check what it was. It was probably something like $30 million. And, and, and of course, when you're chief executive, you have to declare the, the, the remuneration. So yeah. if you go yeah. online, you will see, you, you can see how much I can go and check. You can see how much you got because it's in the annual report. It's in the, it's in the footnotes to the account. <laughs> but, you know, that, that has to be, you know, I, I just think in, in, this, in the scheme of headhunting, you know, that, that's the, the best search I've ever heard of. And, you know, they, they created an outstanding company. Without Eric Schmidt, they wouldn't have done it, right? It was just yeah. two, it was two PhD students. Right. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, an, interesting, an interesting segue. And you said we'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, so, so I, I mean, I haven't done that yet, but I am. Um, so I've done these 12 investments in startups. Um, I, I really like recruiting. I tend to recruit chief executives, finance directors and other board members. So how did you fall into recruiting? Is it, cause, oh, okay. obviously, cause you, cause you came out of software development. You said you sold, you sold, yeah, so what you, happened? Sell, you sold the company. No, we didn't. We, so basically I left my business partner because I realized, I realized that we were kind of hitting the buffers in the yeah. sense that we, what we did is we, we had a licensing business model. I mean, ideally you would have taken a percentage, you know, this is before the internet before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ideally, you know, you would earn a percentage on everybody else's turnover because these independent financial advisors were, were, were generating revenue using our software. But unfortunately all we could do was charge a license fee. And you kind of hit a ceiling with that because, and also we had territories, right? So each IFA had a independent financial advisor, had a territory. And so they would pay us a fee. So, you know, we started generating fees. Uh, so that was okay. But um, it, it was quite hard to sustain the service and, and make it work. Anyway, so after two years, this may also terrify your, your listeners. Um, after five years, someone from who'd been to the same business school approached me about joining a network marketing company about which I knew nothing. But I thought, okay, this, and it was one of his colleagues was American. I thought, actually, this looks more to use today's parlance. This looks more scalable. You could build a bigger business because you're, you're earning a small percentage on the efforts of a lot of people. Yeah. 
And so the next stage was I, I did that for five years and I did it in the UK, Belgium, France, a bit in Germany. And so, so, so basically when I, when I went to Cambridge, I, I got into Cambridge to do modern languages, to do French and German. And then I switched to economics, right? So, so one reason I, I kind of came to the fore quickly there was they, they went into Belgium and then France and most of these guys couldn't speak any French, right? Whereas I could go on stage and run trainings in French. Right. Um, and so on the one hand, net net, I didn't think I made very little money, but it gave me the experience of basically selling and training people in other languages. Um, and uh, so, yeah, because French is my second language and then there's German and, and Spanish. But, you know, when you're immersed in a language for two or three years in all kinds of commercial situations, then you really start to get it, you know, like the cultural differences. And, and that's when I got into the personal development thing, because uh, so the company, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, it, the company's called NSA, National Safety Associates. So they used to do water and air filtration. And then they, these days, I think it's all nutrition. Um, but what it did for me, I mean, sometimes people think, well, that sounds mad, you know, for someone with your background. But what it did for me was it, it, it gave me the experience of dealing with thousands and thousands of people from different cultures. So did you actually earn any money out of this? Because most people don't earn any money out of well, no, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure they do, but I mean... No, we did earn some, but, you know, I, but basically it wasn't enough to pay the bills. So, so the, the next crunch came when I was 35. So I was in Paris running quite a big network of distributors. Yeah. And as you as happens now and then Paris went on strike, <laughs> the whole thing shut down. So my income fell to zero. Yeah. And so this is the next crunch in the story is my income falls to zero. Uh, I had sciatica. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I was slightly depressed. My relationship was ending. This sounds like an American self-help book. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I, uh, I'm a great fan of Debbie Ford. Her, her story is a bit like this, you know, lying on the kitchen floor kind of stuff. So, um, so I couldn't pay the rent. We got to the point where we couldn't pay for groceries. Oh dear. But basically, absolutely everything was not working. Yeah. And, and, um, and I, in the meantime, I've been doing, you know, Anthony Robbins and, and all the stuff that you do when you're in network marketing to kind of rev people up and make Of course, happen. yes, that's why, that's why you gain because network marketing is always about a lot of personal development. Well, it was, it was then. And I actually went to two of Anthony Robbins event and it's like, I mean, he's, he's, He's done a phenomenal job, but it was like the nearest thing I've ever seen to the Nuremberg Rally. So, so, <laughs> it is a bit of a cult. <laughs> well, he, people were talking about would he go into politics? You know, this was a long time ago. This was, 90, this was early to mid-90s. But I was in Memphis in this like, conference center, and there were these people chanting, Tony, 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 <laughs> thousands of people. And I just thought, you know, this must have been what it was like for Hitler and Goebbels, you know. <laughs> and, and, and also this whole thing about how to use NLP to, to make people do things. Right. You know, so I still use NLP because I think the basic stuff's really useful, like, you know, getting, using the same, you know, is this person a thinker or a feeler? Do they, do they, do they see or do they hear? This basic stuff to get on the same wavelength as them. But, but some of my friends did the advanced courses and I just thought the way they were talking about, it, I just, I just felt uncomfortable. Uh, uh, anyway, so in terms of what we're talking about today, uh, I was doing all this stuff and, and, and then I, again, the whole thing wasn't working. Right. So then I thought, okay, so on the one hand, I've done everything correctly. <laughs> like 
you know, I've worked really hard. I've got the right background. I speak the right languages. I'm doing everything correctly. I'm following instructions, but I'm broke and ill. My relationship is ending and I can't pay the grocery bills. Um, so I thought, you know, being a social scientist, I thought, well, on the one hand, this is really painful. But on the other hand, this is really interesting because all the inputs are correct and the output is rubbish, right? So analytical brain comes in here. And, and yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> It's kind of interesting, you know, so the way I look at it, and it's, by the way, this has happened to me again very recently, but now I kind of know the procedure. Uh, it's actually, it's probably happened to me in the last month, is you say, okay, so I'm doing everything as per instructions, huge amounts of effort, output, nothing, um, going backwards, if anything. Uh, therefore, there's, I must be doing something fundamentally wrong. <laughs> um, but I see that as positively. It's a bit like nothing's working. Answer, you need to connect your laptop to the electricity. Yeah, because... <laughs> uh, happen, right? <laughs> so, what happened? All right, Paris. Let's go back to Paris. You had no no money. <clears throat> no money. Relationship ending. Yep. Sciatica. Mild depression. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't go anywhere because because they closed down the metro. Very similar to now. They closed down the metro, so everyone was driving, which means you couldn't go anywhere because there was traffic jams everywhere. All right. Doctors were demonstrating in the streets. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I always remember French uh, strikes get violent, I always seem to remember. They do sometimes, yeah. But the whole thing was shut down. So anyway, so what happened was I, I thought, well, okay, this network marketing thing is not working. In fact, nothing is working. And I, and I started exploring. So I got this course. This is when we had cassette tapes, right? Mm. So I had this course. Um, this guy's still around. It was about how to trade futures and options with this guy called Ken, come back to me, Ken something. Anyway, so, and so my first job when I was in banking was in a dealing room. And my job was to do these charts. Yeah. So, so this guy was doing this, I think he was doing a very similar thing. It was, he was applying uh, charts to trading futures and options. And I wasn't scared of this at all because I you know, had some understanding of. But you, you had know. no money. Ah, yeah, good point. But anyway, so I, so, no, but I had this flat in London. Okay. So I had some equity. Right. But I didn't, I wasn't earning any money. But anyway, so I got this course and the whole idea of the course was you were supposed to do paper trading to get the hang of it. Yeah. So you could just trade, like simulate it, right? Yeah. And this was before the software became sophisticated. So people did it on bits of paper with, you know. Mm. Anyway, these cassette tapes. And I was listening to this thing. And uh, the technical stuff made sense. And, you know, as I said, my first job was doing very similar charts for foreign currencies, right? So that wasn't complicated. So I was, and then, and then on this cassette tape, uh, so I listened to the cassette tape as well as the videos. And the cassette tape said, basically, um, yeah, I'm showing you all the technical stuff, but what's really important, and he was speaking on a Sunday morning, he said, what's really important is the mind. The mind is much more important than all this technical stuff. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and, and then he, and he kept talking about the mind and he'd written this novel. So I got this novel called a rich man's secret, you know, <laughs> sounded good. So I got this novel and this novel is, it's a bit contrived. It's still around, but it basically, and this is 1996. So in the novel, the, the protagonist, the guy who's trying to sort out his life meets somebody, I can't remember the exact story, but the, but the message is, is he's talking about now knows return to now. So I basically started doing 
I, by this stage, I'd given up working because working was pointless. And my girlfriend had disappeared back to London. And um, all I did was I started doing the exercise in this book. I started copying what the guy in the book was doing, which was return to now. So every time I got stress and my mind wandered, I would just return it to now and return my attention to now. A very simple way, like my breath or my senses. And every time I caught myself worrying or wondering, I just kept bringing my attention back to now. And, and the, the only other thing I did was go for long runs in the Bois de Boulogne, in the west of Paris. Mm-hmm. That's all I did. And, and what I realized after a little while was, well, A, I, wasn't, I realized every time I return to now, I don't worry. <laughs> you can't worry when your attention is in the here and now. No. I noticed that. And then I felt, so I felt a bit better despite all the other stuff. And then I noticed, um, I suddenly noticed that I could kind of observe my thoughts and emotions. So I was talking to a friend about this last night and she was saying, for a long time, I thought I was my thoughts and emotions. Mm. And I realized, uh, she also went to Cambridge. I realized actually that's kind of the way we were conditioned. Like you get conditioned to believe that you are your thoughts. Yeah. Or you are your emotions. And then when I learned this exercise, I realized, oh, I can stand back and I can see the thoughts and emotions going by. Right. But by, by the way, just to give the context, The Power of Now was published the following year. So, which I, as I see it, is like the beginning of the, the massive mindfulness wave, right? <laughs> so what happened was I discovered later, I kind of learned mindfulness by accident out of a novel. It does sound like it to me. Yeah, it's like very it's, it's, but it's, that was very, very forward thinking. It was very advanced. Well, before well it was, it wasn't, wasn't it? It just kind of happened. And because I, I tried learning mindfulness before when I was depressed, but it made no sense to me. Hmm. And so I didn't even know this was mindfulness. I just knew, I, okay, I'm returning to now. I'm following what this guy said in the novel. <laughs> so I kept doing this. And then, and then what happened was I, so I kept being present. I kept returning to now. I didn't know about being present. I kept returning to now. And I kept going for runs and, and then I stopped working and then I started kind of having ideas. And one idea was, Oh, okay. So I can read my own thoughts and emotions. Mm-hmm. And then I suddenly realized, Ooh, all these thousands of people I've been meeting. I, I kind of started to realize that I could read other people's thoughts and emotions to some degree. Like I had some sense of what was going on with people. Okay. Which for me was a massive change, right? Because when you're Mr. MBA analytical spreadsheet guy, you, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you don't, you have no clue what other people are up to, right? No, Just, no. But suddenly, I'm sorry? No, or care really when you were that big. You may not care. I mean, if you're on the spectrum, <laughs> you may not care. I don't know. Um, uh, or you just don't tune in. Um, so in my case, I noticed, okay, so I'm starting to read my own thoughts and emotions instead yeah. of becoming them. Yeah. And also I can read other people's thoughts and emotions. And I thought, ooh, maybe my intuition is switching on now, right? In fact, it was switching on like a searchlight, right? It just suddenly switched on. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe I should have another look at executive search or headhunting because maybe I can do it now, right? So I thought, okay, well, let's have a look at that. And uh, so I gave up the, the trading idea and I started, thought, okay, well, maybe I should look at executive search. And then a short while later, this, I started buying British newspapers again. And um, this advert appeared, I think it was the Sunday Times, and it was from one of the biggest search firms. And it said, right. we're looking for consultants just below partner who, um, who can join the firm in London. So you know, here's, 
so I replied to the advert and I and then I thought okay to be thorough I'll I'll apply to all the other big search firms so I must have applied to 12 or 15 of them right and I got the interview and uh and what was interesting was I, I had the same interview many many times you know in the partnership they all have the same interview right that lots of people have interview, and anyone can veto you okay so that's how it works. Uh, they can blackboard you, right? So I had this I, in London. I had these interviews in English and French in London and Paris, and they all, essentially they all asked the same questions, right? Right. There was no system, and but because I'd learned this exercise, and I recommend this to people a lot, is this exercise of just returning to now, being present. I started doing that before every interview, and what I found was I could be present for an hour with no problem. You know, because I, I would shut down my thinking mind effectively by being present. Yeah. And I would just listen and listen and listen and listen for an hour. And what I was surprised by is a lot of these guys talk. They don't, you know, you, th you might think headhunters would ask tons of questions. They asked a few, but mainly they talked. <laughs> and I could, I found I could just sit and listen to them for an hour. And, and because it's a good audience, they wanted to have him in the company. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, other people, I think other people got fed up with it or dropped by the wayside. And anyway, I think they recruited half a dozen of us. And um, here's the spooky part, right? Well, sorry, the other thing I should mention is, so I let, I, I learned to be present. I, I was in the now. I let go, right? I realized my intuition cannot, so, sorry, my intellect cannot solve this problem. I've been working my guts out. Yeah. I've been unable to solve this problem intellectually. So I'm going to let go. I'm going to drop all that. Yeah. And the other thing, um, I spent 10 years as a child going to church and Sunday school. Right. So I gave, but I, I got really upset by the whole heaven and hell thing. Like how come all of China is going to hell? Um, mm. you know, and we're sitting on our plastic seats and we're all going to heaven. How does that work? You know? mm. <laughs> um, so I left the church, but I did, I left the church at 15, but I, I did get the idea. One thing I came away with was, there's something much more intelligent than my brain. Like yeah. I meet people who seem to think that, that, well, there are many people who, who seem to think that everything depend, depends on their brain and their body. Like, you know, if it is to be, it's up to me, you know? Right. And I came away from Christianity with the idea that, no, there is something super intelligent, which is running, running the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so as well as being present and letting go I asked to be guided this conversation was incredibly long it was over an hour and a half or so and so it was split into two as the original upload and I am doing the same here if you'd like to find part two of this conversation do check out the website Life Passion and Business or check out the podcast app the links to John you, you can find all of his links at his website johnperkus.com he's also on LinkedIn um, and those links will be available on the webpage as usual Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion, a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and the sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. 
And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions ebook and worksheets. Now this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery and it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five star review on the app of your choosing. And of course, sharing it with a friend, because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it for me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.